0: Welcome to the fourth episode of our Advent series on Waiting with Wisdom. In today's discussion, psychiatrist and author Kurt Thompson will speak with Trinity Forum President Cherie Harder to discuss healing, grace, and reintegration, both for our individual and spiritual lives and also for our shared lives together. They'll consider how being known and believing what is true about our stories can transform our perspectives and bring hope and healing.
1: The other thing about shame that is really significant is that when I'm in the middle of it, I'm not very able to pause, be aware that, oh, this is my problem, and here are the things that I'm going to do to reconcile and resolve this. In fact, when it becomes too intense, what we really need is for someone else to come and find us.
0: This is an edited version of the online conversation we held in November of 2020. You can find the full video of that conversation with transcript on our website at ttf.org and check out the show notes on this episode for links to further resources and if you're enjoying these episodes please leave us a review here's sheree harder
2: our conversation today tries to burrow into one of the big questions of life that we all face but perhaps with particular acuity right at this time which is how do we seek healing and wholeness amidst relational fracture and alienation In the midst of division and confusion, what does it mean to be known and loved? Or in short, how do we seek, find, and share hope and healing in hard times? These are obviously big and deep questions and there are no easy answers. But it's hard to imagine someone who has grappled with those questions with more expertise, empathy, wisdom, or wry humor than our guest today, Kurt Thompson. Kurt is a practicing psychiatrist as well as the founder of Being Known LLC, which helps people explore the connection between interpersonal neurobiology and Christian spirituality. A sought after speaker and consultant, he is also the author of the excellent books, Anatomy of the Soul, and the soul of shame. As well, I am very proud to add a senior fellow of the Trinity Forum. Kurt, welcome. It's great to have you here.
1: Cherie. always a pleasure. Thanks so much for inviting me to be part of this wonderful gathering.
2: Absolutely. Well, we have only 75 minutes together, so we're just (laughs) going to like dive right in. We have been living through times of fairly extraordinary fear, division, Mm -hmm. anger, shame. And you've written a lot about these emotions, particularly fear, and you've written an entire book about shame. How do fear and shame affect us? What do they do to our brain? And what do they do to our relationships?
1: Well, I think that most of our listeners probably don't need me to answer that question. They could probably answer that for us. In some respects, we would see that these things, when we experience them, probably most prominently do a couple of things one is when i am experiencing fear or especially shame internally when i'm experiencing it the first thing that it does that it does tend to keep different functions of my mind right i'm a person who senses images feels thinks behaves this is what the five things that the brain does those things don't work very well together number one And so it separates those functioning elements from one another, while at the same time separating me from you. And if it's true, which I believe it is, that it's not good for man to be alone, we see that shame becomes this force that separates and puts not just parts of me in isolation from them, but then isolates me from you. And of course, this Practice of shame. I, I practice this because shame begins for us as humans as early as 15 to 18 months of age. I've had a lot of practice getting really good at being ashamed. The, people have called me the master of shame. I don't know if that's a good thing or not. But, but that, and so we're we're so good at it. And the other thing about shame that is really significant is that when I'm in the middle of it, unlike some things, I'm not very able to pause be aware that oh this is my problem and here are the things that i'm going to do to reconcile and resolve this in fact when it becomes too intense what we really need is for someone else to come and find us because i'm not going to be very good at finding myself finding the parts of me that i'm ashamed of that i want to get rid of or going to find someone else that i'm ashamed of being in their presence of because i'm too worried about what's going to happen This is just average everyday life. Mm -hmm. When we put that in the context of how we become afraid that I'm going to be ashamed. And of course, so much of our context right now, whether it's politics or COVID or racial breakdown or whatever these things are, a large part of what our brain is basically doing in all these different domains of interaction is that we are afraid that we are going to be put to shame. One of the primary themes of the Bible, this notion that the psalmist repeatedly asks that they not be put to shame, lauds that God is someone who does not put us to shame. What we read about in Romans five, this notion that suffering leads to perseverance, leads to character, leads to hope, and hope does not put us to shame because shame is the antithesis and is that force that's trying to, the evil wants to use to undermine not only our ability to be known by one another deeply, which we were made for, we were made to be known, but we were also made to be known on the way to creating artifacts of beauty, whether those artifacts are relationships, whether they're new pieces of music, art, businesses, so forth and so on. And so we find that with COVID, we have been kind of physically placed in situations in which the relational and emotional elements of shame are kind of like given a free pass to do what it wants to do in much more dramatic ways, because we don't have access to a lot of the coping strategies that we've used to pretend that our lives are actually okay when really underneath they're not.
2: Yeah, that's fascinating. You know, at one point in your book, The Soul of Shame, you refer to shame as viral in nature, which I'd love Mm -hmm. for you to kind of, you know, sort of pull out, which it almost seems like it's a possible double meaning there, because certainly one of the ways that shame seems to spread so quickly, so deeply, so so widely is electronically and that we have become, you know, if shame is a, a weapon, it's become our cultural go-to weapon, whether it's cancel culture, call out culture, Twitter mobs and the like. And, you know, there have even been studies showing that suicide rates are spiking among teenagers with social media, bullying being one of the factors. So I guess first, why are we doing this to ourselves? given how disintegrating it is? Why has this become our go-to weapon? And are there forms of either protection or immunity? We'll get to healing in a second.
1: Well, I think that if we start with the basic fundamental Christian anthropological notion that it's not good for us to be alone, which we've already referred to, we kind of pay lip service to that. We say, yeah, yeah, that's a fine idea. But we don't recognize that in order for us to develop normally, the human brain, when it comes out of the uterus, the human brain has about 20 to 30% of its neurons doing what they're supposed to do. The other 70 to 80% depend upon connection with other human beings in order for them to come together and talk to each other and to fire in the way that they're supposed to fire. So I need you, I need interaction with you in order for me to have interaction with me within my own neural network structure. And one of the things that, the technologies that we currently have and social media being one of those can do, it doesn't always do this, but has a tendency to do is that it tends to extend the distance that I actually have. If we then, and we we like to say shame becomes more powerful the further away from us in our minds that it's operating. what do I mean by that? I mean that if, I were ashamed of something and you were to come into the room and look me in the eye and say, Kurt, look at me. I'm not going to shame you. I want you to tell me what happened. It would be very difficult for me if I were willing, if I were a willing partner with you, if I was a willing friend, it'd be really hard for shame to stick around. Now, it would be hard for a short period of time. But after you and I have a conversation, Shame has given no room to breathe in that space because we in our embodied practice, eyesight to eyesight, body language, tone of voice, all those things that embodied interaction bring to us makes it very difficult for shame to operate when we are going to go and find someone else in real embodied ways. Mm -hmm. The problem is the farther away I get from people, and this is what social media does, that's not its intention, but it is what it can do. Mm -hmm. It becomes harder for people to come to find me in an embodied way, because of course they're coming to me through Facebook. But it also becomes easier for me and easier for others to shame others in our commentary, because we say things on Facebook that we would be very, very hard pressed to say to someone to their face. And as such, we add to the distance, right? There's things that are out there in the virtual ether that leave me alone in my head. Everything from FOMO, right? I'm missing out on everybody else's perfect lives. Everything from that to the commentary that I hear that people write about people who think like I think and there's all the accusation and so forth and so on. But I don't have a person, a conversation partner with whom I can have a conversation with and whom I can say, can you tell me what it's like to be you? Can you tell me what it's like for you to be in the room with me? I don't have those conversations. And so social media can inadvertently create literally internal neural contexts for us, wherein which teenagers in particular become increasingly isolated, increasingly locked away in their own minds. And this is what evil's intention is. It is to get us alone in a room and beat the living daylights out of us. And here's the thing, It just needs our cooperation because at the end of the day, suicides rates increase because we in the privacy of our own minds are only left with the great feeling and the cognition of there's something wrong with me. I'm not enough. I will never be enough. And this won't ever stop. And so movement, I mean, one of the first things that we say in the Hippocratic oath in medicine is we say first do no harm. And so, in those ways in which social media is actually doing harm, we, I would say, well, one of the ways that you can begin to move in a direction, in a direction of healing, in a direction of wholeness, in a direction of regeneration, is to stop your social media participation. Now, of course, this would be like, some, you know, could you please just stop breathing for the next 10 years? Not as easy to do, but I want to say that, you know, if we were to consider one thing, I would say, consider taking. I know the blasphemy. Consider taking a six week holiday from social media and see what happens to the rate of shame and fear that you experience. And I would predict that it's one of the first major steps that we could move toward to reduce that. And I'm not suggesting that the answer to all the world's ills is for us to get rid of social media. I'm not suggesting that. What I'm suggesting is that social media and our practice and immersion in it represents our penchant as human beings to spend a lot of time in our mind out there thinking about other people, thinking about other things and allowing how and what we think to be wrapped around the emotional core of shame and of fear without having the real embodied interaction with people with whom we can ask questions about these very things that are banging around in our head. And most importantly, we're not in a position in which we can be in a room with people who are unlike us. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: People who might not just not think exactly like I do, but who might think really differently than how I think and thereby give me the opportunity to ask them, gosh, what is it like for you to have to live with me? And then engage in that kind of a question. And hopefully if they're able to actually be true and kind at the same time, We can actually have different kinds of conversations. I can actually tell you what I'm afraid of. I can tell you what I'm ashamed of. I can tell you that what I really want, even if you're my enemy, is that I don't want to be your enemy. I don't want you to be my enemy. I want us to create something beautiful together, even if we don't have the same way of thinking about the world. But we are so caught in our shame whirlpool that we don't give ourselves the opportunity to even consider the question, oh my goodness, it's possible. What would it do? What would I do if I had the opportunity to create beauty with my enemy? We don't even imagine that because of how the neurobiological and interpersonal notions of shame keep tightening their grip the more distanced we are from one another and the more we continue to practice that behavior.
2: So in in contrast to the disassociation and the isolation that you describe, you wrote this. You said, it's only that when we are known that we are positioned to become conduits of love. And it's love that transforms our minds, makes forgiveness possible, and weaves a community of disparate people into a tapestry of God's family. So what does it mean to be known? And how does being known position us to be conduits of love?
1: One of the things Sheree, I've been telling people lately is that I think the hardest thing for us as human beings to do, the thing that we have the least practice, the thing that we're not really particularly good at is not just loving our neighbor, let alone loving our enemy. It's not that I'm not good at that. And by the way, I'm not very good at that. But even more difficult for me and even less well-practiced is my capacity to receive being loved. I think it's fair to say that the evidence of our inability to love others is a reflection of the notion that we can't give what we don't have. To the degree that I'm not loving others is a function of my walking around with the deep conviction that I myself do not believe I'm loved. Now by this, I don't mean that I don't assent to a theological notion that God loves me. I can believe all that. I can quote, the Apostles' Creed. But I like tell people, you know, it's one thing to know as a fact that Columbus is the capital of my home state of Ohio. Thanks be to God for the Ohio State Buckeyes. It's one thing to say that. It's another thing to know what it's like to live in Columbus, to be at those wonderful football games in years gone by. It's one thing to talk about facts of our lives. It's another thing to embody them viscerally. It's one thing for me to say, I know God loves me. Heck, I even know that my good friends love me. It's another thing for me to wake up in the morning with the felt visceral sense of the Holy Trinity being in my bedroom. That when I walk off my porch steps, I'm going with my awareness that my close friends and my colleagues at my office are waiting for me to join them. This felt sense that when Jesus says lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age, that that's not just an abstraction, that this is a felt sense in the same way that my shirt is on me. I feel my shirt. I sense Jesus' presence. We've lived for the last several generations inculcating our faith into our minds and hearts fairly densely through the left hemisphere as a cognitive fact, that's a very different experience than to have it being embodied for us. So for me to be known is not just for me to know that somebody loves me. It is for me to see that you do love me in your eyes, hear it in your voice, in your body language. When St. Paul says, for the one who loves God is known by God, he's getting at the idea that like when I'm known by God, the God of Good Friday and Easter and Ascension, the God whose gaze looks upon me, looking upon him and all I see is mercy, which of course is confounding Mm -hmm. when that's what I'm sensing. Well, of course I would love him. I don't know what that's like commonly. And it's, and I certainly don't know what it's like when I think about how I treat myself. I'm not looking at myself with a gaze of kindness that Jesus looks upon us with. I'm always looking at the different kind of gaze when I'm looking at myself in the mirror, which is why I try not to do that very often. And so when Jesus is looking upon us in this way, I want to take that with me. But that's the kind of thing that happens in new, with newborns, right? They have to take the gaze of their mother and their father and their mother and father practice looking at them over and over and over and over again so I can recognize my parents' voices and face because I have felt it. And so to be known in that way evokes in me this sense of being able to love one another. Imagine this, I tell people, look, if if you were to um, practice what really happens with the presence of the Holy Spirit, that would mean that you would practice imagining that when you leave your house, you leave with Jesus saying to you, you know, Cherie, I cannot wait for the people that you're going to meet today because they are going to be amazed with what we are going to do together. And then you get to where you get to work, and suddenly Jesus is just introducing people to you left and right and saying, Have you met my friend Cherie? She is amazing. And of course, this goes on and on. And at first, it feels a little weird, right? Because Jesus is just telling people how much he loves you and how much he thinks that you're wonderful. And this this is strange because it's too uncomfortable to be known this penetratingly by our God. But after a while, you're like, I kind of like this. (laughs) And not only do I kind of like this, after a while, I become so aware that this is true, that it changes my perception of everything else that I'm sensing in the world. And so I can begin to love those because I'm experiencing it moment to moment. It's not just a thing that I experience for 10 minutes a few times a week when I read my Bible. It is a thing in which I am deeply immersed, but also immersed not just in my personal private worship life, but immersed in the work that I do in interpersonal relationships within which I am seen by those who see me deeply, they are seen by me. And together, when I then go into my life, I'm taking my community with me because if I don't, I'm a dead man. And it is in this time in particular that it's difficult for us because we felt so much fracture in community. And you layer upon that a pandemic that physically makes it more difficult for us to connect. And so in many respects, I liken this to the exile. We maybe have talked about this before that the Jews experienced at the hand of the Babylonians and our whole life is being turned upside down. And yet at the same time, we hear Jeremiah's voice saying to the people, no, I want you to dig in, be present, love the world that you find yourselves in right here and now, because I want you to be a blessing for the city in which you're going to dwell because I'm using this not just for your own good, but I'm using this to prepare the way for someone who's coming. And that I think is what we have an opportunity to do here as believers. We see this landscape as being barren. We see this landscape as being fractured. And I want to invite us to consider that is exactly what evil wants us to do, Mm -hmm. to only see in our landscape barrenness, and fracture. And if we were the disciples on Good Friday, that's all we would see. But God is asking we who follow Jesus to look at the world not through the lens only of Good Friday, but to look at the world through the lens of Easter as it is looking back at Good Friday to see that where there is suffering, where there is barrenness, it is the very place where Jesus is coming and wants to take you to be part of it in order to create outposts of beauty and goodness in the world that we can hardly imagine seeing beauty anywhere.
2: Earth, that's fascinating. And one of the questions, of course, it sort of evokes is how one learns to truly see. You described the story, I think, in the very introduction of Anatomy to the Soul, which I just thought was fascinating. You were talking uh, about essentially being with your mother as she lay dying and hearing her talk about her life. And it was stories that you had all heard before. She'd said them before. You'd heard them before. You'd said similar things in response, but you experienced it differently. And you wrote this, the details were familiar, but what was new was my willingness to allow her story to move me. As I listened to my dying mother and felt compassion for her welling within me, my my self-understanding was also changing. I could physically feel a change. As I began to understand my mother's story differently, I began the process of forgiving both her and myself. Just using this one sort of example as a microcosm, what was it that enabled you to hear your mother differently or enabled the disciples to see differently? And how does that change in perspective, change oneself?
1: Well, as I write about in the book, Cherie, I had just returned from the conference that where I first met Dan Siegel. This is now about 17 years ago. And I was introduced to this notion that my story is only able to be understood when I am understood by someone else. I only ever up to that moment had understood my, whenever I would hear my mother talk about certain things, it just made me anxious because I felt bad, but I didn't know what to do with my bad feelings. And that says some things about the house in which I grew up, in which I probably ended up being a bit of an emotional support for her in ways that a son isn't intended to be an emotional support for one of his parents. And historically, I had only ever heard these stories and felt anxious and a little responsible, like I'm supposed to do something to make her feel better as she's telling me this sad story about her being an orphan. But I recognized in that moment, after having been at this conference, that it wasn't just me responding to her story. It was me responding to the parts of me that I didn't like Mm -hmm. that made it difficult for me to hear her story in the way that she was really telling it. And in that moment, I was recognizing that my difficulty with her stories had a lot more to do with my difficulty with my own than it had to do with my difficulty with her. And so compassion came because I had had some experience in the meantime between the meeting with Dan and this time with my mom, I'd had some experience with someone, uh, with others, meeting me in my story in ways that they just hadn't been before. And this is why we talk so much about how healing when, when we talk about healing a nation, when we talk about healing these relationships, whether it's with our parents, and I, and I should say this too, you know, in full disclosure, I'm now the last remaining member in my family of origin. And when my oldest brother died a few years ago and the last of my brothers were gone, I found myself accessing feelings, not just about, you know, my parents, but about my brothers, about others. I found myself feeling things that I hadn't been able to feel before because we know that they're it's just true that there are certain conversations that you can't have until certain people are dead. And I don't, our listeners are out there. I'm sure that they will know what I'm talking about. And in this way of having conversations, it's not about those particular people, but they it, it, we have this difficulty in accessing things that are true about our own lives, things about me that I feel bad about and that I'm angry about and so forth. But instead of actually addressing those things internally for us, those things turn around and they become the sources of energy for me to find problems with other people. And so my anger with my spouse, my anger with, you know, if, if I'm a Democrat, it's the anger with the Republicans and if I'm a Republican, it's the anger with the Democrats. It's, it's the anger with any, anything that's outside of me. We can say, if I'm having real trouble with other people, the first question that we have to be asking, the first movement toward healing is what happened to me? What is the part of my story that is not yet known? What is my sadness? What is my grief? What is my longing? Where is my own shame? Where is my own fear taking up residence in me? in a way that I'm not naming. And I have not yet had another human to ask me those very questions that had been asked of me that allowed me then to be in my mother's presence and hear her story for the first time differently. Because also first my own story was being heard differently by myself. But that's something Sheree that we don't do by ourselves. As I was said earlier, I don't really ever come to know God or know myself apart from being known by others until I see myself in your eyes and hear myself in your voice. Well, I can't
2: turn it over before asking you about beauty. The Bible not only tells us to remember constantly, it also tells us to consider the lilies, to immerse ourselves in, reflect on, consider and remember what's beautiful.
1: Right.
2: Uh, so what role, if any, does beauty have in healing our minds?
1: I had the privilege of being in a webinar last night with Mako Fujimura, a participant, when, one in which he was speaking. And he and I have become friends in the last several years. And that work has been heavily influential in the work that we're now doing in our practice one of the things that we're really good at in Western culture, and, and, and it, it serves a necessary purpose, and that is that we're really good at identifying problems. We're good at discerning where is the problem and how does it need to be fixed? Oh, the tire is flat. I need to fix that. I, and that's a good, you know, it's a good skill set to have. Changing the oil, whatever it is that we need to be able to do, those things are all really important. The problem with that is that that is how we dominantly see all of life we do not dominantly ask the question, what is the new beautiful thing that I'm being called to create with God? And I want to suggest to our listeners that when the first couple were standing on the precipice of first creation at the end of Genesis chapter two, where the male and female, this differentiated human organism, right? This differentiated couple that were naked, they were vulnerable, and shame was not part of the driving force, standing on the precipice of creation, they were not wondering to themselves, this is great. I wonder what the problems are that are out there that we're going to get to solve. Their commission was not to go into all the earth and solve problems. Their commission was to be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, steward the earth, create beauty and goodness wherever you go. And in God's social economy, this would be, do justice, love, mercy, and to walk humbly with God in all that we do. Shame and fear when they get to be too dominant will have me paying attention to my world, mostly through the lens of what is the problem here that needs to be fixed? What is the pathology that needs to be diagnosed and treated? As opposed to what is the new thing I'm called to create? That leads me to my right hemisphere of activity It literally, for me to be curious about what I'm going to make, even in hard places, especially in hard places, to create beauty in the middle of hard places, takes me into a position neurobiologically and interpersonally that makes shame very, very difficult to operate. Mm -hmm. So when Jesus identifies the lilies, he's talking about lilies in a land that is typically otherwise completely barren. What in the world do you have lilies doing in a place that is this barren? And he's saying, and then it's not just barren geologically or meteorologically. It's barren in a lot of ways. The Romans are here. We have to eat bread hand to fit. This is is really difficult. And in that very difficult moment, instead of Jesus saying, hey, y'all got to get your stuff together because you gotta work hard because if you don't, then you're not gonna be okay. He's saying in this space of barrenness, in this place, I want you to consider beauty. We consider beauty to be a luxury. And I wanna suggest to us that not only is it not a luxury, it is a neurobiological and relational necessity. And it is in creating beauty that I am necessarily going to say that I'm going to trust God to be present and active in this moment instead of me spending time worrying about things. Mm -hmm. Instead of being anxious about tomorrow and the day after and the day after, Jesus is saying, create where you happen to be. But Jesus, if I'm going to create, that means I'm not going to be able to like figure out what we're going to do with all the bad guys in the world. To which he is saying, yeah, I know. And you spend way too much time doing that anyway, which is why you can't pay much attention to me and haven't been, which is why you haven't been able to receive being loved by me, which is why you can't pay attention and create beauty, let alone love your neighbor, let alone love your enemy, let alone then live into what I've asked you to do from the beginning. As we heard last night in the webinar, considering the lilies was not a suggestion from Jesus. It was a command. Pay attention to the lilies. See how their life is being lived in the middle of this barrenness and do likewise.
2: That's great. Finally, the last word goes to you, Kurt.
1: I want to say, first of all, again, I'm I'm really grateful. I, I know that, uh, as Scott Peck said once, life is difficult. And it's just true. And I think it was Fritz who asked the question about this concern, about this growing sense of fragility as far as our mental health is concerned. And I would want to say to him and to everyone else that we are afraid is not because we're weak or because we're pansies or because we haven't worked hard enough or because we don't have our crap together. That we are afraid is because we're humans. And it's into that space where we are afraid that we read over and over and over again in the scriptures, don't be afraid. And I further want to say to us. Don't be afraid to be afraid. Because I believe that it's in that space where we can acknowledge our fear, and especially if we acknowledge it to someone else, who in being known by them, can then also ask us the question, what do we want? What do we wanna become? What do we wanna make? And where do we wanna become outposts of beauty and goodness in the world? And let's go do that together.
2: Kurt, thank you. It's been a delight as well as a very hopeful conversation.
0: Thank you for listening to our fourth episode in our series on Waiting with Wisdom. If you're enjoying these, please leave us a review. This is an edited version of the online conversation we held with Kurt Thompson in November of 2020. You can find the full video of that conversation on our website, ttf.org, and check out the show notes on this episode for links to further resources. And be sure to subscribe to Trinity Forum Conversations to make sure you don't miss an episode.